Welcome to SEAC Stories, a podcast run by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre here at the University of Sydney. My name is Natalie Pearson and I'm your host. Today I'm joined by two guests, the first of which is Professor Marina Kennison, Professor of Neurogenetics and Neurosciences at the Sydney Medical School and the ANZAC Research Institute. Her research focuses on identifying genes involved in inherited peripheral neuropathies meaning disorders and diseases that affect the motor and sensory components of the nervous system, and particularly the identification of gene mutations. Marina is also our country coordinator for Malaysia, and she was recently awarded a grant through SIAC to do a project in Malaysia on motor neurone disease, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Marina. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Natalie. Thank you. Our second guest is Professor Nortina Sharizaila from the Department of Medicine at the University of Malaya. She is the lead researcher from Malaysia on this project and is dialing in today from Kuala Lumpur. Following a fellowship at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre a few years ago, Tina set up the first dedicated multidisciplinary motor neurone disease clinic in Malaysia. Tina, welcome to the SIAC Stories podcast. Thanks very much, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about motor neuron disease, which is also known as ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And this is a topic that is close to my heart because it is something that my grandfather suffered from. And we're going to be looking at motor neuron disease in the Malaysian context. Marina, I'd like to start by asking you to tell us what motor neuron disease is. Well, essentially, it's a devastating disease, and it's a disease in which the motor neurons, which are the cells that will talk to the muscles in our body, they begin to basically die. And when this happens, this will affect an individual's ability to move, speak, swallow, and even breathe. So often the outcome for motor neuron disease is fatal. I mean, I guess Tina would be seeing patients all the time and she might be able to make a little bit more comment on that as well. So I think just to echo what Marina had said, it is a degenerative disease that causes the motor nerves to start being affected and that's really the wiring to the muscles in our body. And patients present in various different ways. They can present with weakness that starts off in the limbs or weakness that starts off in the speech muscles, the swallowing muscles, or even weakness in the breathing muscles. And what happens is that they progressively get worse. And unfortunately, at the moment, there isn't really a cure to halt this particular process. So each individual patient will require a different set of approach, depending on how they present. I was going to ask you if there's a cure for it, and I guess we know that at present there isn't, and that's where your research comes in, but how long are you usually working with patients from the time of their diagnosis? What are the timelines like here? So again, this is where it does depend when the patient presents to us. So one of the biggest challenges, certainly in Malaysia, is that the disease awareness is lacking, and as a result, Perhaps even healthcare professionals, certainly you know, general practitioners, may not be aware of motor neuron disease. And therefore, if you are unclear of what the symptoms, the signs, and how they might present, so there may well be a delay to when the patients present to the neurologist in charge. 
But looking at the research that's been shown, not just in, in our cohort, but also elsewhere, we're talking about a year of delay. So say a patient presents a year into the symptom onset. So again, depending on the type of onset, so where they start off in terms of the muscle weakness, looking after them or the disease process may well take any time between two years to up to five years. But this is not something that's set in stone. So I don't really want people to go away thinking that that is it. It does depend on the individual. It does depend on lots of different aspects in terms of what sort of supportive treatment they're receiving in terms of how it's going to affect their survival. You said that there's a low awareness of motor neurone disease in Malaysia. Why is that? Well, first of all, it is a rare disease in terms of neurological disorders. So you're more likely to be aware of something like stroke, which is far more common. And that is a huge burden, not just in Malaysia, but around the world. And also it requires a set of skills and investigations that is not necessarily something that many neurologists or many clinicians would have. So for instance, to make a diagnosis of motor neuron disease, you know, you require skills in terms of doing neurophysiology, for instance. So when there isn't much resource to, to try and make the diagnosis, then there are not as many patients that are being diagnosed. And therefore, in terms of raising awareness, there are a lot of other diseases that may well get a lot more priority. How common is motor neurone disease in Malaysia? Do we know how many people suffer from motor neurone disease? And what are the rates of reporting like? All you can do is really extrapolate from what we know of the epidemiology elsewhere. Because at the moment now, it really is going to be quite tricky to capture all the patients. And this is really largely due to the fact, you know, we're going back to the, you know, raising awareness and identifying patients. So you will find that patients may not necessarily be referred. But if we go by established incidence and prevalence elsewhere, so I mean, Malaysia and Australia, we've got similar population. For us, we've got about 32 million. So going by that, I think the incidence in Australia is roughly about two per 100,000. So if you're looking at that, at any one time, you would expect to see more than 2,000 MND patients in Malaysia and certainly in, in Australia. And as mentioned before, you know, we, we have in the last five years set up the multidisciplinary clinic. And as far as I'm aware, certainly it is the only one in Malaysia and we're certainly not seeing those numbers. But, you know, the numbers are rising in terms of referrals. So I think it is a long way to go before we truly capture the true incidence and prevalence in Malaysia. Do we know what causes it? Is it hereditary? Is it caused by gene mutations? What's the research telling us? So definitely we know in ALS that 10% of cases are what we call familial. So they are caused by a gene mutation in a family. And I think there's over 30 genes that are known to cause familial ALS. But the majority of ALS cases are what we call sporadic. And when we sort of think about what causes the sporadic ALS, we often refer to it as multifactorial, where an individual could have maybe some changes in their DNA that might increase their susceptibility to getting motor neuron disease and then we also have to take into account environmental factors. 
So the majority of cases in ALS are difficult to actually say what causes it because of this multifactorial idea, but we do know that in about 10% of cases, there are gene mutations involved. So Tina, you've got the clinical expertise and Marina's got the experience managing human genomics projects. Why is this sort of multidisciplinary approach to motor neuron disease important? I mean, the multidisciplinary approach to MNZ, it does extend to more than just the genomics or the neurological aspect. So the multidisciplinary team or the approach does include other aspects, for instance, from the clinical perspective, which is managing the patient's disability, which is not something, you know, the neurologist makes the diagnosis, but then we do require input from the rehab physicians, for instance, in terms of managing the disabilities that comes along with it. And also we involve the respiratory physicians, the gastroenterologists with regards to support for respiratory muscle weakness and also the swallowing difficulties that the patients can most often encounter. And then of course, we've got the palliative team because this is unfortunately a terminal illness and decisions to make in terms of things that they do and do not want at the end of life are very, very important to respect patient's autonomy. So those are really the clinical aspects. So in that sense, that's the multidisciplinary team that we have from the clinical perspective. So we are now in an era where it is no longer just clinical but there is also the science that one needs to understand, regardless of whether you're a clinician or a scientist. And this is the concept of translational medicine, because in order to understand what's actually going on with patients, and certainly in something like MND, where the pathophysiology is still, you know, there's still lots of hypotheses, we're still not close to finding a cure. I think as clinicians, it is very important for us to also understand the science behind it and the science behind it does involve genes and I'm sure Marina will be able to tell you more about this and I think from Marina's perspective it's also important to look at the clinical aspect to be able to translate what they're finding in the science in the genes that translates into proteins then translates into the mechanism the pathways of what's actually happening in the patients so this translational medicine is increasingly important particularly in neurodegenerative changes such as mnz yeah thank you for introducing us to that idea of translational medicine Marina, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so Tina has been presenting the clinical side of things, but the science side is very much, and I guess that's where I come in with my handling of genomics projects, because I guess in terms of looking at ALS in Malaysia, one of the first things that we need to do is to basically, whatever ALS patients that Tina comes across, we should screen all the known genes that we know cause ALS and find out whether any of these genes are actually causing the disease in these individuals because as soon as you find something like that you at least have a way of potentially knowing how to manage the patient and also manage the patient's family knowing that you may have a mutation in the family and then as as Tina also alluded to in terms of the translation of what we're doing the majority of cases we don't know what is actually causing it but if we have say the familial cases where we have genes that we know cause the disease then this is like putting together a puzzle of trying to understand the biology 
underneath what's going on in the motor neurons in patients. And so it basically allows us to understand pathways and potential pathogenic mechanisms, so disease-causing mechanisms, that at the end of the day, if we can begin to understand what actually makes the motor neuron actually want to shut down and die, then they become like targets for therapies, so drug treatments or gene therapies and things like that. And so it's really important that we try to understand the genetics, or at least what we currently know, because it might provide hints as to the biology of what's actually going on in motor neuron disease. So, Tina, you've set up this clinical space in Kuala Lumpur, and that's now become the key tertiary referral centre for motor neuron disease in Malaysia. But you're both also interested in exploring this genetic landscape of motor neuron disease, and that's where this project comes in. Why is Malaysia the perfect place to do this sort of research on the genetic basis of motor neuron disease? Well, one of the main reasons is we've got a very multi-ethnic population. So the population consists of three major ethnic groups. So that's the Malays, you've got the Chinese and also the Indians. So one of the key things is that the Chinese and the Indians would be second, third generation Chinese and Indians. This allows us an opportunity as well to look to see whether ethnicity plays a role in patient susceptibility of developing MND because there have been studies that suggest that they might. And one of the important things to also try and elucidate is, as Marina had mentioned before, we believe that in the majority of MND patients, the cause is multifactorial. So we're talking about patients having perhaps a genetic susceptibility, but you put into place various different risk factors, some of which includes environment, lifestyle, you know, that sort of thing. And having a cohort that is, for instance, with a Chinese ethnic group, for instance, but living in a different geographical area. So those are factors that might give us some idea as to what could be having an impact on a person's susceptibility to developing MND, for instance. And I understand that similar genetic studies have taken place elsewhere in Asia, including in China, Japan, India, Taiwan, and South Korea, but that Southeast Asia has thus far been completely left out of these genetic studies. Yes, so thus far, most of the studies have come from East Asia, and of course there's been you know, an explosion of research that's come out of China. But Southeast Asia, although we share a lot of similarities with East Asia, and also there will be some cross-linkage with India, but we're talking about a population that has got different ethnicities and also different resources. So the healthcare systems in Southeast Asia is very different to Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, where they get a lot of support from the government in terms of treatment for ALS, for instance. So being able to actually investigate what's going on in Southeast Asia that's really crucial to really seeing how that impacts patient susceptibility to developing MND. And I guess the thing is, is that when we sort of think about the research that has been done 
on ALS. I mean, the majority of it very much comes from European population. And obviously, as Tina said, East Asia is, has got the support to be able to do these things. But I think Southeast Asia, it's like an untapped populations that could have some really interesting answers for ALS in our region. And I think it's a really important thing that we're trying to target un unstudied populations. And I think the world itself, globally, I think the world is asking us to do that as well, because they want the multi-ethnicity to actually understand the disease. Yeah, it really has the potential to have global impact. We'll come to the potential impact of the research in a moment, but I just wanted to get a sense of what your preliminary studies are suggesting. I understand you've mapped the genes of about 100 patients so far? That's correct. Basically, we have 100 patients and we have screened the most common genes that cause ALS in populations. And I believe we've come up with three two SOD1 mutations and... Yeah, so we've had a couple of C9-OF, 72, which is a genetic mutation that you commonly see in the Caucasian population, mm -hmm. but not so much in the Asian population. But we have seen SOD1 mutations. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is that the mutation that we're seeing in our cohort is different to what is seen in other cohorts. So that's been an interesting finding for us because I think that's something that we can take further. Yeah. And so these are the genes which we know are familial. So if you have these mutations, then you can pass them on to your relatives and they can potentially develop the disease as well or they would develop the disease as well. So that was really our first, that was really what um, our first lot of funding has allowed us to do is to look at all of these known genes and take it from there. So you're looking at the known mutations. Have uh -huh. you seen any evidence of novel mutations? So we haven't seen novel mutations, but we have a strategy that we are going to use to try and see if we can identify novel mutations in some of these individuals. And it's what we call a trio study. And basically you have an individual who is affected with the disease and then you'll have the parents. And so what we're thinking of doing is sequencing that trio of individuals and trying to see if we can see new mutations that are occurring in the affected individual. And basically the way that you would do that is you would look to see what's in the affected individual and see what's absent in the parents. And then if you can see that, then you'll see that that's a new mutation. So we have strategies. It's tough because a lot of the time you only have a single patient that you have to work with, but there are strategies to try and identify new genes and novel mutations. Great. So what is the potential impact of this research that you're doing in Malaysia on the big scale? As we'd said before, this is really a population that's not been previously studied. It is also a multi-ethnic population and being able to understand the patterns of the disease that's occurring in Malaysia will be very important because it may well be that patients have a similar disease pattern or it could be that they've got a disease that's a lot more protracted. So these are all very important. And of course, we are also investigating patients from the Malay ethnicity. So part of the work that we're doing is also to look at the whole genome sequencing of this 
group of patients and I think that will be very useful to have that information that can feed into the public database of patients from this particular ethnic group because I think that's something that's lacking at the moment. I think Marina will be able to discuss this a bit more. Yeah, yeah. So one of the types of genetic studies that you can do are what you call genome-wide association studies and there's been ample amounts that have been done in the European population. But of course, DNA variants might be ethnically specific you know, depending on your ethnicity. And so by us doing this type of research, we're also, in a sense, generating a resource of information about the Southeast Asian region and, in particular, Malaysia. And this can be added into studies that can be performed in sort of like a consortium-type effort. And so I think being able to generate that type of information while at the same time trying to look for particular changes for our own research to try and see if we can find any novel genes. And also with the mutations that we actually do identify, that then actually gives us a chance to try and actually look at the biology of what is going on with those mutations. So it gives us a resource to actually go on and try and do functional studies, and which will then you know, contribute to translating from the bench, you know, doing experiments on the bench to potentially trying to treat the patients. Look, it's such important research and SIAC is so proud to be involved in some small way in supporting you to do this. I'd like to thank you both for sharing information and knowledge and insights about motor neuron disease in Malaysia with us on the SIAC Stories podcast. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.